This is All India Radio. In the weekly program Current Affairs, we now bring you a discussion on significance of Chinese president's visit to India. The participants are Shashi Uban Tripathi, former diplomat, and Dr. Jabin T. Jacob, Nilova Roy Chaudhary, journalist, initiates and moderates the discussion. Prime Minister Justin Vesti this evening received the Chinese president at Mahabalipuram or Mamalapuram as it's called in Tamil Nadu. It's quite fascinating that President Xi Jinping's visit, which was there was speculation for a while that it may or may not happen given the various unpleasantnesses that happened over various statements made by various Chinese officials. The fact that the visit has actually happened and that President Xi has arrived in India actually happily looking at beautiful sculptures along the Coromandel coast uh, and the uh, Bay of Bengal. I would like to ask you today the very fact that President Xi has arrived at a time of fair deal of sort of, for want of a better word, tension between India and Pakistan, India and China on a variety of fronts. What do you think President Xi's visit to India can achieve? And I'll start with you, Shashi. What do you believe can be an outcome, shall we say, of this yeah. visit? This is a testing time for India-China relations, mainly because of developments in Jammu and Kashmir and the responses of China, who have gone, taken new turns, said one thing one day, another thing another day, but on the whole, it's been very negative as far as we are concerned. On the other hand, even China is beset with problems. Let's not forget what is happening in Hong Kong, what is happening to its Muslims in Xinjiang. So for both the countries, this is a testing time. And so it is important that this kind of a visit took place at this kind of time in order to reduce the tensions somewhat. You see, we are huge, two huge uh, nuclear armed nations and rivals at best. We are both jostling for a leadership role in Asia, also on the global table. So for more reasons than one, we need to manage our relationship in such a way that there is peace on the borders. We've had so many incursions by Chinese troops in the past. But since the informal summit in Wuhan, you would remember that we have been able to manage the relationship on the borders somewhat better. So it is important for us to have this kind of an informal summit where both leaders are not under a pressure to either look for outcomes or to look for statements or to wait for agreements. And uh, in an informal setting, they can discuss bilateral and global affairs in a wide-ranging manner without going into the nitty-gritty of it. Mr. Jacob, the issue of this informality of a setting and two major leaders of two large countries coming together and discussing whatever besets them. Do you think that this is a novel or an interesting way of trying to manage the relationship at best? Uh, because, you know, nobody says that we'll be fantastic friends, but is this the best way ahead in terms of managing the bilateral relationship? I don't think so. I have a problem with the fact that, you know, this business of state-to-state -state, uh, relations is conf conducted in this informal manner. I mean, given Doklam, I suppose something out of the box had to be devised and the informal summit in Wuhan in April of last year 
probably did that. Look at the sort of atmosphere in which these talks are taking place. As we referred to just now, there are several tensions, points of tension in the relationship. So if the informal summit, the first one, was everything it was cut out to be, then clearly it has not achieved its aims mm -hmm. because we are meeting in the same air of hostility and uh, tensions in the relationship as we were before Wuhan. So I would say, look, there are structural problems in the relationship that meeting without an agenda or meeting informally simply cannot resolve. There has to be a process. And while, you know, in China, Xi Jinping might be able to get away without discussing these matters with the wider public or with the wider community, in a non-transparent manner. In India, you know, we don't function like that. You know, foreign policy might be still a very executive function, but we need inputs, we need some sort of accountability as to what these exercises are achieving. At the moment, I think we had some, at the end of the last informal summit, some CBMs were announced, but, uh, and there is talk of more CBMs at this one. But these are really very informal arrangements and one needs to, I don't think we've really achieved that high a bar. And if you look at the 16th Lok Sabha's Committee on External Affairs report on India-China relations that was released at the end of last year, it actually points out that uh, on Doklam the situation isn't as unambiguously tension-free as is often made out. So even on that front, I think we have not really achieved. So would you say that what is being attempted is not adequate to even begin to resolve the kinds of outstanding issues that there are? Or or is there a way in which a meeting of the sort of top executives uh, can percolate down to some incremental steps that can, you know, go towards easing the tension somewhat. But no. these would skirt, necessarily, they would skirt the major issues. Yeah. Look, I have no doubt that the major issues are being discussed and these sort of exchanges are important. But to call them informal really doesn't help. You need to discuss these issues that are bothersome in the relationship up front and clearly. And, uh, you know, we need to have some sort of a standard against which outcomes can be judged, understood as having occurred. If these informal summits take place and then we are back again to these tensions in the relationship, uh, then what really are we achieving? At the end of the day, officials have to sit down and hammer out specific issues in the relationship. So, yes, she and Prime Minister Modi are meeting. It's good to break ice every now and then. But I think you also have to match what we are saying or what Chinese are saying with what they're doing. And clearly... President Xi upped the ante a bit by referring to the issue of Kashmir in his joint statement with uh, the Pakistani Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. He needn't have done that. His foreign minister had been harping on Kashmir quite a bit. On the one hand, the Chinese makers wait 10 years for the sanctioning of a terrorist and that the first opportunity they can get back on the Pakistani side by talking Kashmir in support of the Pakistanis. Shashi, the, what are the options that India actually has at the end of the day? I mean, you have to manage this particular relationship. So this, you cannot let it go completely out of hand to a point where hostilities overtake us. And to that extent, would you think that this kind of way, trying to sort things out from a top-down approach might work in terms of getting the relationship back on some kind of keel? 
it is easy to be cynical about a meeting like this because mm. if you just look at the optics and the music and dance that is going on, then you wonder what is the substance behind it. But as you say, this is important. While the nitty-gritty and the substantial part of our relationship and our challenges, our irritants will be discussed, they are being discussed all the while by our relative delegations. But at the topmost level, if we can build a some kind of an understanding, I won't even say confidence building, I would say understanding. Although, look, China knows what our position is on different issues, whether it is trade or whether it's terrorism or whether it's the boundary question, they know it. We know their position. But then negotiations are a question of give and take. And uh, negotiations happen with the officials, but the indications come from right at the top. And once, if we can gain it into Xi Jinping, that we need some kind of reciprocity in this informal atmosphere, if our Prime Minister can manage to get across to him that we need some kind of reciprocity in China showing concern for our sensitivities, mm -hmm. just as we show concern for their sensitivity, I think we would have achieved a lot. In the sense that India hasn't really publicly commented on the, the agitation in Hong Kong that's been going on for now two months almost. India has a very unambiguous position on Taiwan, despite Taiwan wanting to do so much more with us. So we have always been very careful to abide by their core issues and not impinge on those. Why then must this exercise be undertaken, Mr. Jacob? I'll ask you this again, that the Prime Minister goes and meets the President of China. They meet in a setting which is replete with all of this symbolism, and this is the place from where India-China relations were sort of first established, as it were. But none of that really seems to come back in terms of the modern era. And it appears to be that China is continuing in the same way that it always has. Now, would that be a correct interpretation? Historical reference is useful because at that time the India-China equation or the equation between the civilizations was a much more equal relationship and India was seen as uh, at one point of time Chinese philosophers, reformers were referring to India as the big brother okay? because India was the source of Buddhism and so on. But today what we have is a power differential. And that really is a basic fact. Chinese don't see why they should defer to Indian interests when they are so much more powerful politically, economically, as well as militarily than the Indians. So while we have to be sensitive to their concerns, the Chinese don't feel an equal need to be sensitive to our concerns. And that's just the way it is. That's the power imbalance in the relationship. But the fact of the matter is that when Doklam happened, they tried their hardest to try and get India to blink. And India did not blink. I mean, whatever come what may, India kind of stood its ground. And I think that is something that they're a little wary of. Would, would that not be the case? I mean, given the fact that kind of propaganda that was happening, that, you know, they would be smothering us, they'd be doing all kinds mm -hmm. of things. None of that actually, we didn't succumb. So to that extent, when you show a spine to China, and I think we are doing that, I think they start getting a little wary. I mean, we've unilaterally abrogated Article 370 in Jammu and Kashmir. We have said it's an internal matter. It's part of the Indian constitution. We will do what we want within our country. Who the hell are you at the end of the day to go and tell us how to go about doing it? Do you think that something along those lines was what prompted President Xi perhaps to actually come to India despite 
Uh, no, I don't think so. I think this meeting was always in the offing and it was always in the works. But I think what India has done is leverage to try and push through a bunch of moves I thought India thought would be sensitive. One was, of course, I think the dilution of Article 370 at this point of time was something that would have needed to be done before the visit. Similarly, Modi's event with uh, President Trump in the US, the foreign minister level talks between the members of the Quad, Quad. all of this has happened quickly in the last few weeks and months, in fact. And I think it's good to have sort of done all of that because we parlayed what leverage we had to tell a signal to the Chinese, look, we are not without our ability to do the things that we think we are is necessary. But where the Chinese see it, you know, anything to do with the Quad, anything to, the, to do with the US is always seen as anti-China. So the Chinese, from their position, they see if you're not with us, then you're against us. And uh, that speaks to the sort of attitude that the Chinese have, which is to say that India doesn't have agency of its own. India must necessarily work aligning its interests with the Americans, as if India doesn't have interests of its own or interests that it needs to defend on its own. And I think that's the fundamental problem. The Chinese do not look at us as a peer power in Asia or in the world. They also do not want to acknowledge that we might at some point achieve that sort of a Power. Beijing has always wanted to sort of equate and hyphenate India and Pakistan and make sure that both countries stay at the same level. I think, again, part of the symbolism of inviting President Xi over to South India and Chennai, which is a hugely industrialized and considerably mm. more developed than large parts of North India, I think that goes to send subtle signals that, you know, whatever you might think, you are so colored by what Pakistan says that you don't know the reality of what India is. And I think the subtle messaging does get across in certain ways because I have heard the Chinese, if there's two things that they're really scared of in India, one of them is the media, of course, they cannot handle the uh, the kind of criticism that they come in for because uh, that's something they're not used to. When they see any signs of development that sort of even come close to theirs, they get a little rattled. And I think the whole infrastructure elements in Tamil Nadu, particularly this Chennai to Mahabalipuram stretch is spectacular. And, and part of the reason for choosing this particular place is all of those things. It's not, uh, there's a lot of Chinese investment in Tamil Nadu. So the automobile sector, ICT, what have you, I mean, the trying to impress upon the Chinese that listen, don't even think of trying to equate us with the Pakistanis. And given the state of the CPEC at this point, I don't think we are, we are doing that badly at this point. Shashi, what would you say? No, absolutely. I quite agree in that China respects strength. It respects might. And it has seen that this India of today is not the same as the India of 1962. You can't push it beyond a point. They have seen what happened at the UN Security Council, where they asked for a debate, and yet it was off the record, and then most countries took India's side, except for China and Pakistan. These were the only two who were on one side, and the rest uh, were on, on India's side. So that could not have been lost on China. So you see, today, India's global position, its profile, is different from what it used to be once upon a time. And China has to be aware of that. So all said and done, this kind of a summit is important in many ways. As you said, in passing on subtle messages, also in passing on some clear messages. Because in an informal setting, given the two leaders and the way they are, both of them are strong leaders, they can, Prime Minister certainly can, indulge in some 
straight talking without being, what shall I say, without being disrupted. So it is important in that sense. What happens, we have to see. But uh, this, all this cannot be lost on China, that this is a different India. As you rightly said, it's good that we organize this in, in South India, although some have alleged that it was uh, China that wanted Mahabalipuram to be the venue for these talks because of the relationship that goes back to the 8th century. But whatever it was, I think it's a very important and it's a useful way to use the length and breadth of India in order to give the message that this is a huge country too, not and it is not uh, it is not restricted to Delhi. So all said and done, this uh, meeting should have a positive outcome in the sense of not substantial agreements, but in some kind of an understanding. Let's not forget that after uh, Wuhan, the two leaders had passed on directives, as they were called, to their armies to build trust. And now let's see. That was the outcome of uh, Wuhan, if you remember. Let's yes. see what the outcome of this one is. They will also, of course, be talking about regional affairs, and Afghanistan is the one that immediately springs to mind. One of the outcomes of the Wuhan summit was meant to be that India and China would jointly do something in Afghanistan. That, of course, has not yet happened, and China has tried its hardest to ensure that India stays out of the reckoning in the talks in Afghanistan. Now that President Trump has so publicly called off the Taliban talks, does India again come back into the whole process to the detriment of China? Is that something that you think Beijing would be wary of, Mr. Jacob? Chinese have a line to the Taliban through the Pakistanis, and they have a pretty strong line there. Problem really for India is that the central government in Kabul, which the Indian it supports, is weak, it does not have control over the whole rest of the country. Chinese have been pushing this line about having to talk with all parties to the conflict in Afghanistan for a very long time. But the crucial fact which needs to be underlined and which is also what puts the India-China cooperation in Afghanistan on a shaky wicket is that the Chinese do not care about the nature of the government in Kabul. They do not care if it's democratically elected or if it's a Taliban government does not respect the rights of women or minorities in Afghanistan. As long as that government is follows the one China policy and you know keeps in mind Chinese interests. Now for us that is anathema because we have a particular notion of how countries political systems need to operate and we are for a democratically elected government in Kabul. This is something that we need to sort of keep eye on. I mean, India-China cooperation in Afghanistan is pretty fraught. If the Chinese are unwilling to acknowledge that a certain political process that has been achieved so far cannot be rolled back. I'm sure that at this point of time, coming from on the back of the enormous electoral victory the Prime Minister just had, he would want to be pushing things like the boundary issue and wanting a resolution of some species of you know forward movement on the whole boundary issue. That said, the Chinese have in recent years, you know, gone back and they seem to be hesitating to do a lot of things except for pontificating. So what can the Prime Minister do actually? Is it possible that there is some kind of a forward movement on the boundary issue which is so central to our sort of hostilities? 
I really don't know because uh, this is a technical issue and we've had so many rounds of discussions now it's on the boundary. It's I mean, so rounds of discussions and we don't know where exactly it is going. Sometimes at the highest levels, what is decided is a bit of give and, and take. Give a little bit of territory here take a little bit of territory I mean, there. In 2005, but for example, the guiding principles that came on and there was so much Bangladesh, Bangladesh, of course. But see, why can, if President Xi wants, I'm sure there can be a fair deal of forward movement on the boundary issue. And Prime Minister Modi, this early in his second term, would be in a position to bargain better. Do you think something along those lines might happen? We have two strong leaders on both sides. If the boundary dispute can be settled. It can be settled by them because they have the political backing. I mean, ultimately, it's a political issue. Technical work has been done, but we cannot do it in parts. Uh, we cannot do it in piecemeal fashion. We cannot talk about clarifying the LAC first because it has to be done at one go. The central problem is that, you know, both these leaders are extreme nationalists and the resolution will involve a change in the maps of India and China as we have all grown up drawing. So now that's a big issue. Can these nationalists sell this proposition to their own peoples? And if they don't feel confident that they can do it, there will be no boundary resolution. Now, having said that, I think the boundary is actually one of the best managed parts of the problem. These transgressions don't really add up to much in terms of muddying the waters or vitiating the relationship. It's actually gone beyond the boundary. You know, our relationship with the US, China's relationship with Pakistan, China's growing presence around the world, China's growing national power, our inability to catch up, the weakness of our economic relationship, all of these are now additional complicating factors in the India-China relationship. And add to that this very strong rise of nationalism, or hyper-nationalism one could say, in both countries, complicates matters. The boundary dispute is just now one part of the India-China relationship and or one part of the problem in the India-China relationship. But one which could actually be sorted out if there was intent to do it at the top level. So then the next thing we come to is trade. I mean, people to people, yes, I think that is one area where there is definite progress in terms of the numbers of mm -hmm. people from each country traveling to the other. On trade, Shashi, what, how does India make inroads into the Chinese market given the China-US standoff? There too, you see, China has been adamant and uh, although we have a huge trade deficit, in spite of that, we have reduced the duties on a whole number of Chinese commodities, whereas China has not reciprocated. So this is one thing that uh, needs to be taken up with them, we need reciprocity in, in trade. You see, their talks with the U.S. are going on and uh, similarly talks with us, but they have to show us some accommodation. So there too, I think we will have to push for some kind of quid pro quo. So much about trade. You mentioned people-to-people -people relations. Now there too, the problem was the question of visas. You remember that uh, China gives separate visas for people from Arunachal and Jammu and Kashmir, mm -hmm. not on their passports, mm -hmm. but as a, so we, we object to that, of course. Mm -hmm. So that needs to be sorted out. So there are a whole lot of small problems, but the most important problem, I agree with Jacob, that uh, the boundary is really not the main problem today mm -hmm. because it is being managed. The main problem is trade 
and it is terrorism. This is where we need China to understand our deep, our core concern, as it were. But they don't seem to quite acknowledge how important it is for us, but that is our core concern. But it's fascinating to me that nobody in the vast uh, sort of Islamic world has anything to say about what's happening in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. I mean, this is something that fascinates me. So, you know, suppose you have a Taliban government that comes in into Kabul. How would they justify their hardcore beliefs without actually raising these kinds of issues? This is what the hypocrisy of it on the one side is what is completely fascinating. But the third other issue that I um, think uh, we need to talk about is the Belt and Road Initiative, which is President Xi's uh, great personal uh, initiative. India is not going anywhere with that. So what do you think, Mr. Jacob, is the way ahead? Again, India will not budge on this because these are sovereignty issues that we have. So where are the meeting points in the India-China relationship? I think on the Belt and Road, you know, our position is very clear, it's very strong. But we can still do business with the Chinese and the Chinese have been open to the idea of any sort of a relationship. Even though we might not call it BRI, they are happy to invest because you see the size of our Indian market is something that attracts Chinese companies. But it's not just the trading relationship. It's also about investments. It's about uh, tourist inflows and so on. Now, on all of these fronts, you know, there's much potential that is unexplored or unfulfilled. But there are also now increasing complications. Chinese investments are increasingly in India's tech space. Now, there are implications there which we haven't really fully thought to. And one of these is now coming on board, which is the Huawei, Huawei. 5G trials. The Chinese are putting pressure on the Indians to allow Huawei to participate in 5G trials in India and to 5G market here. But this is something that we have to be very careful about. And essentially, it boils down to Chinese domestic politics. We have to understand how the Chinese domestic system works. There is, in fact, not much of a wall between the Chinese state and China's private enterprises. They are all beholden to the Chinese state. So when we say we are dealing with a private company in China, it's not quite the same as we would normally understand a private company to be. I mean, just take the case of the recent incidents in which, you know, the Chinese have so quickly pulled Chinese companies from dealing with the NBA, the National Basketball League in the United States. Or earlier, the instance in which the Marriott hotels were penalized because they made references to Tibet and to Taiwan. And that's how quickly the Chinese can put pressure on foreign companies through their private enterprises or their state-owned enterprises. We do not have that kind of leverage. In an Indian court of law, a Chinese company and an Indian company would be treated just the same, which is not the case in a Chinese court of law. So there are these structural differences which we need to account and which we need to take into consideration when we say that we are going to do business with the Chinese. And uh, the Chinese have to understand this difference. And therefore, the BRI is problematic for a whole bunch of reasons, but also for this. Anything going forward in the trading and investment relationship between India and China uh, have to take these points into account. Now, on tourism, though, you know, the Chinese can control the taps. They actually direct their tourists to places like Sri Lanka and Maldives as a way of in increasing influence. So if they were minded, they could very well turn on the taps and say, go to India. It would be a big, big boost to the Indian tourism market as well as the India-China economic relationship. I think that's where Mahabalipuram comes into the picture, yeah. I guess. Shashi, I'll let you have the last word on this. What 
then can we sort of look forward to from this the wonderful optics of this whole meeting what then is the substance of what happens is it the, the talks that mr doval has with his counterpart and jay shankar has with his counterpart or can we expect something more substantive you know i think uh, we should look at this meeting with uh, cautious optimism and hope that at the end of the day some kind of understanding develops between the leadership of india and china which will help us to manage our overall relationship in a more rational and in a better way because after all we are huge two huge neighbors and we are not going anywhere right so we have to deal with one another we have to deal with our challenges and if there is a certain understanding everything becomes much easier so i'm hopeful of as i said we should look at it with cautious optimism but again what would that entail i mean what would you hope that cautious optimism might come from i mean because on the face of it they both sort of get along well with each other so what then emanates from such a visit you see the talks that they are going to have they have about 4 5 hours to themselves and that is the time when you can get across to one another without the delegations being there without your having to impress your other minions or your other delegates so you can be open although the chinese we know that the chinese are very shrewd and not really very open but one hopes that this informal setting and the 4 5 hours that the two leaders have will lead to some kind of an understanding of our core concerns thank you very much you were listening to a discussion on significance of chinese president's visit to india the participants were shashi uban tripathi former diplomat and dr j t jacob Nilova Roy Chaudhary journalist initiated and moderated the discussion this program was produced and presented by the news services division of all india radio you can also listen to this program on our website newsonair.com you may email your opinion about this program at airnsdtalks@gmail.com you can also follow us on the news on air app for quick news updates